The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. If the court kicks this case away because it wants Congress to fix this problem, it, what will have done is it will have returned the law to the status quo, which is of a very broad understanding of 230, a very broad one that the companies like, and therefore a situation which the companies are incentivized to have Congress do nothing because they like the status quo. Um, and so that's, I think, the kind of catch-22 that the, the, the court has. But given how messy oral argument was and given how difficult all the justices, including 230 skeptics like Justice Thomas or maybe Justice Alito, given the difficulties they all recognized, it may be that they just throw their hands up and either uh, for reasons related to the underlying liability theory under the ETA or just because sometimes like they dismiss cases because they literally cannot come up with an answer. That may very well happen in this case. I'm Quinta Jurassic, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 23rd, 2023. On Tuesday and Wednesday of this week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a pair of cases concerning to what extent online platforms can be held responsible for terrorist content on their services. Gonzalez v. Google focused on the scope of Section 230, the statute that shields platforms from liability for third-party content. Twitter v. Tomna, meanwhile, concerned whether platforms can be held liable under the Anti-Terrorism Act if members of terrorist groups use their services to recruit and spread their message. Oral arguments took a combined five hours, as the justices slogged through these difficult questions about the functioning of the modern internet. To discuss, I sat down with my fellow Lawfare senior editors, Scott R. Anderson and Alan Rosenstein, and Lawfare Editor-in-Chief, Benjamin Wittes. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 23rd. The Supreme Court hears oral arguments in Gonzalez and Tomne. All right, everyone. It is so good to see you after a marathon five, six hours of oral arguments distributed over two days. I, for one, am pretty exhausted. So let's start with just summarizing the cases uh, so listeners have a sense of what we're talking about. And then we will dive in. Alan, I'm going to turn to you first. Can you just give us a sort of high-level overview of Gonzalez versus Google? Yeah, sure. So this case, like the other case, Tomna, it arises out of uh, terrorist attacks that killed a bunch of people uh, and the families of some of those people then suing major platforms, Google and Twitter in particular, for helping the terrorists. And the theories uh, of 
how those terrorists were helped differ a little bit. And we'll get into more of the specifics about that when we talk about the Tomna case. But the general idea is that um, these platforms, which are generally open to all, provided services um, in the way that provide services to all of us and to any organization that wants to sign up with them. Uh, they also provide services to ISIS if ISIS wants to sign up uh, with uh, Twitter or wants to post recruitment videos to YouTube. And the idea behind these lawsuits is that by not taking more proactive steps uh, or sufficiently proactive steps to get rid of that content, that these companies therefore aided and abetted these, these terrorist groups. So one question that arises in these cases is this question of whether or not that counts as aiding and abetting. And the second question that arises in these cases, and why I think these cases are not just important to a national security audience, but have become really picked up by the national media and by uh, you know folks who care about the, the internet, is that in the ordinary course of business, platforms are not liable for the content that is posted to those platforms by users. And this is because of a very famous law, um, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, uh, or what is known as Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, passed in 1996, uh, sometimes described as the 26 words that created the internet, uh, which is the title of uh, one of the best books on the history of Section 230, uh, sometimes described as the Magna Carta of the internet. And basically the foundational law, because by providing immunity to these platforms allows them to have a business model where they serve as many people and as much content as possible. And so what uh, these cases are alleging is not only that the companies violated civil law related to uh, helping uh, terrorists, uh, but that they did so in a way that renders this immunity inapplicable to them. And the specific theory there is that they didn't just host this content, they also recommended it through their algorithms to users. And the argument uh, that the uh, petitioners uh, are making in these cases is that even if the platforms can't be held liable for the content of what their users post, they can be held liable for recommending that content. And that, uh, as I'm sure we'll get into, uh, would have some pretty profound implications uh, for how platforms have to operate going forward. All right. So that's Gonzalez. Now let's talk about uh, Twitter v. Tomne, the second case. Scott, can you give us an overview of that case? Sure. The facts are very similar and kind of materially identical to Gonzalez, uh, as Alan laid it out, I think very ably, uh, as are kind of the underlying claims. The real difference here is that because of the posture of the cases uh, before the lower courts, this case was decided by the Ninth Circuit on the question of the scope of liability under the Anti-Terrorism Act. Uh, there's a provision of law that's been in law since 1996, I believe, if I'm recalling correctly, which sets out a fairly broad set of civil liability claim in fairly broadly worded terms that allows victims of terrorism who are American nationals to collect treble, meaning triple damages for terrorism-related claims. It's been the source of a lot of litigation because it's worded very broadly, and courts have been reading common law ideas about tort into this liability claim and this cause of action, which has led to very divergent views. And the Supreme Court historically has been very resistant to weighing in. This is quite notable because it's I believe the only time the Supreme Court has gotten this close to weighing in on how to interpret this particular provision. But they're actually not interpreting the original ATA. They're interpreting a specific liability provision relating to aiding or abetting liability that was added to the law in 2015 by JASTA, a fairly controversial law that was 
uh, vetoed by former President Obama, then enacted by Congress over his veto, that essentially lays out an aiding or abetting claim um, for injuries. I'm going to just read the statute, the line out, just to make sure I get all the elements here. But it's for an injury arising from an act of international terrorism committed, planned, or authorized by a designated foreign terrorist organization. It says that liability for those sorts of acts may be asserted as to any person who aids and abets by knowingly providing substantial assistance or who conspires with that person for that act of international terrorism. On top of inserting this language into the law, JASTA also specifically said, hey, we want you to read this language in the way with the idea of aiding or abetting liability in mind that the D.C. Circuit articulated in 1983 case called Halberstam v. Welch, a very well-known opinion by then-Judge Patricia Wald, uh, along with Judge Bork and Judge Scalia, so three kind of lions of the D.C. Circuit in the early 1980s, um, who came together and laid out in this very long, complicated opinion different ideas of secondary liability. And they're saying, hey, we want to import that model into this statute. And that's led to a lot of questions about, well, how do these knowingly and substantial assistance requirements that are in this version of aiding or abetting liability fit into the broader ATA model? And how should we read them in light of the statutory language and this non-statutory language statement of intent by Congress saying, read this in line with Halberstam v. Welch because they don't translate one to one. And that's really what the courts were wrestling with in this particular case. It's also worth noting because of the posture of these decisions, either case kind of kind of resolves the other one, not quite the same for Tomna. But if they rule that this cause of action does not reach the things Twitter's alleged to have occurred to, here too, that almost certainly applies to Facebook and Google as well. And the Gonzalez claims, the lawyers for them said, well, we reserve the right to restate and amend our complaint to try and fit it in and make clear that we meet whatever standard the court settles on. But at least for the moment, it's going to kick those claims back to the lower courts and release the the need to reach this 230 question. Um, so if you resolve Tomna on the ATA question in a way that does not lead to liability, the 230 questions become potentially moot, although I suppose the court could reach them if it wanted to. Ben, anything else you think we should have on the table about these cases before we dive in? Yeah, I just I, I want to foot stomp this last point that Scott made, which is that the entire internet law community had a giant freak out of either misery or excitement, depending on uh, from whom, over the Gonzalez case and paid very little attention to Tomna because it's, of course, not an internet law issue. It's an, it's an ATA uh, secondary liability question of a very garden variety kind of nature. But the result of these two cases being paired the way they are is that Tomna could really cause the, the 230 freakout to be over nothing. That is, it could evaporate if, as I think, uh, I suspect, the court does not find that there is liability for Twitter here. So let's start uh, with Tomna and shake up the order a little bit. This was a pretty technical argument. Uh, I sensed some frustration from the justices about uh, just how many uh, different aspects of the Halberstam test there are. If I understood correctly, there's three. It's a three-part test, and one of the part one of the parts of the test has six different components. Justice Gorsuch seems somewhat irked by this. Um, so, Scott, let me go to you first. What was your overall sense of arguments. Do you have any sense of the way that the court might go? Yeah. My sense is that the court, like you noted, was really frustrated by this 
weirdly written law, and particularly, frankly, the attempt to import Halberstam v. Welch into the interpretation of this law. Because Halberstam v. Welch is a really different case. It's a case that like primarily deals with an instance where a woman was prosecuted for aiding or abetting a burglar who ended up killing a man over the course of a burglary. And she was essentially the man's kind of accountant and fence and accomplice of sorts, but in indirect ways, not participating in the robberies, but supporting in various to various degrees. And it leads to this question saying, well, okay, we have these knowing and substantial assistance requirements in this statutory language. Does it mean that Congress thinks that those terms should necessarily reach the sort of relationship we saw this women have with this burglar in Halberstam? How exactly should we translate them onto each other? And they really wrestle with this. And it's further complicated by the fact that Halberstam v. Welch lays out a three-prong sort of test, the latter prong of which has six kind of sub-prongs of factors you're supposed to consider. Uh, I just want to say that really should not be allowed. It really is kind of absurd, especially because they're all kind of like prongs. It's not clear. Like it's not, they're not like ex- requirements. They're just factors to consider, but they don't really clarify how they relate to each other. And on top of that, um, in a great line, Justice Gorsuch, I believe it was Justice Gorsuch, criticized the government for then adding six more uh, prongs on top of this in the way that they frame the question. So it's a really complicated factual test. Yeah. Forks only have like three or four prongs. They should just there's a physical line. Forks only have three or four prongs. Yeah. This is one of those things you used to scratch your head with like a million prongs <laughs> that come down, if you know what I'm talking about. It's really bristles, not prongs. <laughs> it's bristles. It's a comb. Okay. Exactly. Well, we're all very tired. Scott, back to oral <laughs> arguments. But it really boils down to kind of three different prongs of argument. One is, well, did Twitter know that they were doing this? The Plaintiffs point out that there's lots of media reports saying that ISIS was using Twitter. Supposedly, there are even meetings with U.S. government officials. Twitter says, yeah, but we had policies in place to pull down content by these users and by that specifically talks about ISIS to different extents. Uh, and the plaintiffs basically say, well, you had a reason to know that it wasn't sufficient. It wasn't complete because you still were getting these reports that ISIS was using this platform, even if you didn't have specific knowledge of a specific account that ISIS was using, because otherwise you would have pulled it down. Then there's this question of, of, well, do you have to provide what is substantial assistance? The plaintiffs basically argued, hey, substantial assistance because of this Halberstam v. Welch sort of relationship. Really here, we're talking about substantial assistance to the enterprise, to the organization or the joint venture that's being launched here. That's ISIS. It's not substantial assistance specifically to the act of terrorism. It's to ISIS generally. So that you are essentially, if you provide support to ISIS, you then have some responsibility for aiding or abetting whatever ISIS then does after that that's criminal and harms somebody. And then there's this question of, well, the statutory language does actually say aiding or abetting by knowingly providing substantial assistance implied to the act of international terrorism. That's the kind of like the subject of that whole provision. And then the question is, well, what does that mean? Does it mean that that substantial assistance had to have been provided specifically to that one act, the terrorist attack? Or is it specifically with knowledge of that act and that that act was going to happen? Because like, and it's not like nobody accuses Twitter of knowing, oh, they're going to attack this cafe at this moment, right? But that's true of lots of material support cases, lots of other ATA cases. That's a much more direct relationship. And Congress said when they enacted JASTA that they are trying to give plaintiffs the broadest possible ability to recover damages against potential aiders or abettors of terrorism. All this is happening against a big policy backdrop that the US government really hit really hard, much more expressly than they usually do. That is the background of all of the Anti-Terrorism Act claims that make it really problematic in a lot of ways from a policy perspective, even though there's a lot of ways that the government likes the way it's being used, which is that if it's too broad, you are punishing companies 
potentially for all sorts of actions by taken by these terrorist entities that they may have even deliberately been trying to stop but not been effective at stopping. And in doing that, you're creating an incentive structure where these companies are just going to start cutting off and stop providing services to lots of people, probably not Americans, but say in parts of the developing world where you know you have terrorist groups and you have less control over who they interact with, or you might not be able to identify them. And it creates all these incentives to do what's in the sanctions context is often referred to as de-risking, where companies voluntarily, perhaps more than is legally required, but voluntarily just disengage from whole sectors, from whole populations of potential customers. And that can have a lot of policy ramifications when you have a law that's this broad providing treble damages. And so for that reason, this big question is, is where is this line going to be drawn? None of the justices, in my view, and I'd be curious about your all sense, my sense is that they were very skeptical of the knowledge line that the company was trying to draw. It seemed clear Twitter had some knowledge here. There, the question was, well, if they needed some specific form of knowledge, the pleading here alleges that Twitter has knowledge because these media reports plausibly. If there's some more specific standard, that's a fact question. And because this is coming from a motion to dismiss, those fact questions, this is determining whether the facts as alleged are so clear that there could not be a legal argument that they may met here. And I think most justices seem to be leaning towards the idea that knowledge was in fact a fact question and should go to a jury and therefore can't be a basis for a motion to dismiss. So it really, in my mind, came down to the substantial assistance and to what you're providing substantial assistance to argument, which is all what in the context of other ATAKins we call proximate cause. Basically, the idea being this assistance provided has to have some sort of proximate relationship in the chain of causation to the actual harm suffered. It's a pretty familiar concept from tort law, although how it applies to a given facts is always super fact-specific and contentious. And my suspicion is that's where the court's going to come down on this. Because I didn't hear anybody, I think everybody seemed uncomfortable with the idea that Twitter could be held liable by anyone ever harmed by ISIS, which is kind of close to what you get if you pursue the view advanced by the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit disclaimed that it was holding that, but it's harder to distinguish and, and clarify where the real limits are. So I kind of suspect that's where the court's going to come out on this. Judge Amy Comey Barrett was very express saying, this is probably the easiest place for us to hold in Twitter's favor, right? Um, and I think she was kind of leading the court's thinking, frankly, in a kind of helpful way, saying, here's the one place we might actually be able to agree to come out on this. But we don't really know. Um, and we will have to wait because there's a lot of different questions going in different directions and a lot of open skepticism of some of these arguments being advanced. So I, I have some thoughts on this, but Ben, I want to turn to you. Scott put a lot on the table here. And I, I do want to come back to Justice Gorsuch's, I think, wisdom, actually, which was, uh, he, he, he said very politely, is there any way to cut through the bullshit here and these multi-part tests and uh, actually resolve this on the basis of the text? He was being, you know, a bit of a dogmatic textualist here. On the other hand, there are certain times where you can get really hung up in the multi-part tests instead of just reading the damn law. So let's read the damn law. It provides for uh, recovery by U.S. Nas nationals injured by, quote, an act of international terrorism committed planned or authorized by a designated foreign terrorist organization and any person and, and provides liability for any person, quote, who aids and abets by knowingly providing a substantial assistance or who conspires with the person 
who committed such an act of international terrorism. So the statute by its terms is much, much more tied to the assistance to the people who conducted the crime. And I think at the end of the day, that text is going to be very disciplining and is going to require the court not to have find liability for Twitter here. If Twitter is liable, it is very hard to see how, you know, the phone company, which, you know, is aware that ISIS uses the telephones, right? Cell service providers are aware. They just don't know which accounts. And I, I, I think there's, it's a, it's once you start saying a general awareness is enough, uh, you really make any kind of regular business practice extremely difficult. And so I, I think there, the, the line drawing is complicated, but I just don't see how these alleged facts could give rise to liability. One thing that I found myself really wishing uh, had been addressed more during oral argument was the speech implications of all of this. Um, you know, there, again and again, we had this comparison to, you know, a bank. What happens if Osama bin Laden walks into a bank and says he wants to open a bank account? But of course, we're talking about Twitter, which is very much not a bank. It's a place where people talk to one another. And my worry as someone who's taking a look at this from the the sort of more on the 230 end is that if you create a situation where platforms could potentially be held liable for this kind of thing, you've just created an incentive for platforms to either not moderate at all so they can say they have no knowledge or massively over moderate. You know, there was, there was this thing that kept coming up of people saying like, well, you know, but they didn't remove all the ISIS accounts. What does it mean to remove all the ISIS accounts? How are you identifying what counts as an ISIS account, right? There is some suggestion that, you know, Twitter should be liable because the government had informed them that there are ISIS accounts. You really want a situation where uh, a social media platform is potentially liable if the government walks in there and says, please take this account down, and then they don't take it down. And ironically, this is exactly the kind of circumstance that Section 230 is designed to address, which is part of why these these cases are interwoven. There's some complicated discussion between counsel for petitioners, Eric Schnapper and Justice Jackson about how they're focusing on the recommendations, not the content. That's why I think uh, 230 wasn't involved here. But it really did strike me that that was a huge elephant in the room. Alan, I'm curious for your thoughts on that. No, I, I think that's right. And I think it's just important to clarify what the nature of the speech concern and if it was placed in a First Amendment format, what it would look like. The the concern, right? I'm not saying you're making it, but just want to make sure we're all clear. It's not that uh, YouTube or Twitter has a First Amendment right to promote the speech of terrorists, right? I mean, in Holder versus Humanitarian Law Project, the court drew a fairly sharp line limiting the First Amendment claims to do things on behalf or, as that statute uh, framed it, materially supporting terrorist organizations. Rather, the argument is different, and it is fundamentally about the collateral sort of second-order consequences for everyone else of a liability regime that opens platforms or phone companies or whomever to treble damages just because they happen to 
in the course of their general provision of services include some terrorists among that, right? And First Amendment law has long taken account of those issues. I mean, the, in a sense, the foundational piece of First Amendment law that actually, in its own indirect way, leads to Section 230 is this 1959 case, Smith versus California, um, which held that bookstores could not be held strictly liable for the stuff that they uh, sold, specifically because if they did so, the effect would be to uh, massively constrain what bookstores would be willing to sell, and that would have these speech implications. So applying that same logic here, you have to have some sort of limiting principle to the statute, you know, not just as a matter of actual statutory interpretation, but if only as a matter of avoiding potentially the statute violating the First Amendment um, in its kind of collateral effects. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So, Alan, you mentioned there the, the material support statute, um, which is something that came up in oral arguments. Justice Kavanaugh mentioned it a couple times that, you know, Congress drafted JASTA to be different than the material support statute. And Ben, you have thought a fair amount about how the material support statute might come into play here with social media companies and uh, accounts from people who are associated with terrorist organizations. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that and how it connects to Tomne. Yeah. So I, I do think a bunch of the justices were having a bit of confusion between the material support statute and this statute. And they are different. Actually, the, the justice who seemed to understand that uh, most clearly was Justice Kavanaugh. The, the material support statute forbids as a criminal matter giving a thing of value to a foreign terrorist organization, a designated foreign terrorist organization. So you can violate the, the material support statute without supporting a particular terrorist act. If you give your services or money or whatever to ISIS, you're in violation of the material support law. And I have been very critical over the years of Twitter for allowing uh, sometimes the leaders of terrorist organizations to have Twitter accounts. Um, for example, uh, for a long time, they took it down in response to my article, I think, but the, the military wing of Hamas had a, had a Twitter account. And this is, you know, I think a frank violation of U.S. criminal law. That said, it does not satisfy this provision for civil liability purposes unless you can show or allege that 
say that Hamas Twitter feed did something that materially contributed to or caused substantial assistance to the conduct of a particular terrorist act. And I think the two laws are different. They are designed to do different things. And it's possible that, you know, some will sweep more broadly in in some areas than others. But this one does have this statutory tie to a particular act. And just one one point of clarification here for folks who who may not be tracking this very complicated statutory scheme. Remember that what we're talking about here is an aiding or abetting provision, meaning about secondary liability for assisting things. Material support, insofar as it's a violation of criminal law, actually is an act of international terrorism for which you can have primary liability. Um, the question then becomes, well, here we're talking about secondary liability. The plaintiffs aren't alleging that Twitter knowingly kept up an account of a designated FTO in a way that would violate, that would make it subject to primary liability, they're arguing the secondary liability. So don't think that material support doesn't fall under the statute. In some ways it does, but not necessarily the aiding or abetting bit. It's a different legal structure. And that's kind of what's complicated here. All right. So let's now talk about Gonzalez. I will say from my perspective, I went into oral arguments with Gonzalez really, really worried that the court was going to make a big mess of Section 230 and potentially cause a lot of problems for the internet. I came away thinking that they'd sort of maybe granted cert in this case, thinking that it was going to present the issue really cleanly, and then took a closer look at the briefing and said, oh, God, no. And we're actually really thoughtful about the potential fallout from a ruling that substantially changed how courts interpret Section 230. And so I came away at the end of the day thinking, you know, that they they might just not touch the statute or, or touch it in a very sort of subtle way. Alan, I'm curious what you made of oral arguments. Uh, I don't have enough Advil in my house is the main thing I made. <laughs> it, it was, it was long and it was brutal. Um, I mean, honestly, part of it was brutal was the idiosyncrasies of who made the arguments. Unfortunately, the lawyer for the petitioners did honestly not do a particularly good job, which started off the argument on a very, very rough foot. You know, once it got to the, the government, um, which was basically making the petitioners argument uh, in a much better form. Uh, and then Google, uh, who's, uh, uh, lawyer also did a, a nice job. It became a little clearer. But I do think that the difficulty that the petitioner had is reflective of a larger problem with this case, which is that it is an example of the sort of hardest kinds of li- line drawing that the court needs to do. Um, and the court didn't come in with a very good sense of how to draw the line. And the petitioner, perhaps reflecting how difficult it is to draw the lines, also didn't come in ready to draw those lines, um, which again, I think probably he should have realized he was going to be asked those questions, but whatever, that's a different issue. To make it more concrete, you know, th- there are two extreme positions, I think neither of which are particularly um, appealing to the justices. Um, one position, um, and this is the position, you know, basically of, of Google and the platforms, is that no matter how a platform recommends a piece of content to a user, that is inextricably linked to its function as a publisher of that user's content. And because Section 230 prohibits platforms, quote, from being treated as a publisher or speaker of uh, user content, therefore, you just you can't get them on recommendations. The problem with that extreme view is that 
and I think it's something that Justice Sotomayor in particular focused on, that creates some very unpleasant hypotheticals. For example, what if a platform were to, um, uh, like a dating platform, for example, were to um, discriminate against one racial group, right? It, it didn't show white users, um, non-white uh, dating profiles, or vice versa, or something like that. Or what if a job platform or a, a housing platform did the same thing? Presumably, and I think not just Sotomayor, but the other justices would think that Section 230, um, at the very least, should not uh, apply in those situations. So on the other hand, though, the other extreme, which was presented as far as anyone can tell by the petitioner, uh, and again, more clearly by the US government, was that um, recommendation is simply just categorically different from uh, content. Uh, The problem with that view is that in a world in which you have essentially infinite content and for platforms to be useful, they have to sort and filter and search and parse that content in some way. Everything is fundamentally algorithmically recommended to users um, to the point that even search engines, kind of the most fundamental way uh, that we interact with the internet are a kind of recommendation algorithm. You enter something into Google, Google does some magic behind the scenes. It has some candidates, and then it ranks those candidates in order that it thinks you will find useful. That is a recommendation algorithm. And so where to draw that line is the primary problem that the court is facing. And no justice, I think, had a clear way of of doing that. Now, what makes this problem even harder is that we're not talking about some obscure little technology. We're talking about the internet. And we are talking not just about the internet, but about an internet that for the last 25 years has built its business model on a particular interpretation of Section 230 as applying not just to the hosting of content, but also to its recommendation. Now, the reason it has done that is not primarily because of 230, but because of a case called Zoran versus AOL, which was decided by the Fourth Circuit a year after 230, that interpreted 230 very broadly. That case quickly became the dominant interpretation, and the Supreme Court has just never decided to weigh in. And so now, 27 years after the fact, the Supreme Court is finally going to tell us, or, well, we'll see if it does, um, has uh, uh, offered to tell us what 230 means. But that means that there are 27 years of kind of business reliance interests um, about that. And some justices, and Kavanaugh in particular, but I think all the justices recognize that they need to tread very, very carefully because there are not just billions and billions of dollars at stake here, but there is the actual digital public square that they as justices themselves use every day. And so I think for the court, what would be best is if they could somehow kick this can down the road uh, so that Congress could fix the problem. Congress could rewrite 230. That itself raises a question of what it would take for Congress to to do that. I think the irony here is, is that if the court kicks this case, you know, uh, away, because it wants Congress to fix this problem, it, what will have done is it will have returned the law to the status quo, which is of a very broad understanding of 230, a very broad one that the companies like, and therefore a uh, situation in which the companies are incentivized to have Congress do nothing because they like the status quo. Um, and so that's, I think, the kind of catch-22 that the, the the court has. But given how messy oral argument was and given how difficult all the justices, including 230 skeptics like Justice Thomas or maybe Justice Alito, given the difficulties they all recognized, it may be that they just throw their hands up. And either uh, for reasons related to the underlying liability theory under the ATA, or just because sometimes like they dismiss cases because they literally cannot come up with an answer, that may very well happen in this case. Yeah, you mentioned Thomas and Alito. I will say one of the justices whose questions I found very interesting was 
Ketanji Brown Jackson, um, who seemed like she was very sympathetic to the argument that Zoran should be narrowed, that Section 230 should be interpreted much more narrowly. I think um, that she was drawing on a brief filed by the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative with Marianne Franks and friend of the pod, Daniel Zidron. And that struck me as interesting that we know there's at least one voice on there who would be interested in, in narrowing Zoran, presumably along with, with Justice Thomas. Ben, I'm curious what you made of it. So I thought the oral argument was a bit confusing, partly because I thought the counsel for the petitioners was really bad. I know Scott disagrees with me about this, but I I thought it was, he went off on a bunch of kind of kooky tangents that the justices spent probably 60 minutes trying to reel him back in from. And so I I actually had a hard time figuring out where the center of gravity was, except to say that I don't think there are five votes to do anything terribly radical. And I do think that Alan's fond wish that Google gets its head handed to it on a platter so that it will have to go to Congress and seek a reasonable amendment to 230. Uh, I did not see any appetite for that on, on the court. So I guess my basic view, I also, by the way, have not seen anybody propose a test of how you do the line drawing in, uh, with respect to recommendations that looks stable to me. And so my assumption is that if we get as far as a decision on 230, and I do think the thing is likely to be resolved on the basis of Tomna and therefore either dismissed as improvidently granted or the Ninth Circuit opinion be vacated and remanded, I don't see any dramatic change or interpretation that's likely to have five votes. And so I guess I think we're probably dealing with something pretty close to status quo ante. That said, the thing was a muddle. It was two and a half hours and very hard to figure out where the center of gravity was. And if it gets as far as a merits decision on the meaning 230 of 230, I would not venture a prediction of where the Supreme Court's going to be. Yeah, I'll just follow up. You know, I, I agree with Ben. I, I I don't know if I thought necessarily that um, you know, the counsel for Gonzalez was the weakest of the three. I didn't think any of the advocacy was super great on this, although it's a complicated issue. And they had pretty aggressive questioning pretty from pretty much from from the outset. And maybe from unexpected quarters, because Justice Thomas weighed in very aggressively early on. So, you know, I thought the government really wrestled a lot, frankly, when they were trying to draw a distinction between the immunity claims and the underlying liability. And basically, I mean, they basically were trying to make an argument about, oh, the underlying liability is so limited because the cause of action is so constrained. We don't have to worry so much about reducing the scope of potential immunity. It's a really complicated argument. They didn't communicate well. It caused confusion for judges. And then Lisa Blatt came in crystal clear, but that's because she does not give an inch. And so, you know, I, I don't think you really saw that much engagement for the arguments on all of this. But I don't think that means it's meaningless, even if it, frankly, doesn't reach the 230 issue. If this goes down on Tomna, or maybe it gets digged and Tomna gets digged, right, as as I know uh, our friend Steve Vladek is yeah, saying. Yeah, can, can you explain what that means for people who aren't familiar? Oh, 
It means dismissed as improvidently granted. So it basically means the court said, hey, we should never have given this cert in the first place. We'll kick this back. That is what I suspect would happen with this case. They would like dig it and say, hey, go back lower court, consider if Tomna was ruled to say that, in fact, the ATA doesn't reach that sort of claim, um, as Ben noted. But it could happen to both. The court could decide, eh, this is a mistake on both fronts. Let's just leave the lower court opinions uh, where they stand. The one thing I'll say is if they do that, if this ends up without a firm decision on 230, I actually still think it's really, this oral argument's really notable. Because the one thing that came across very clearly here is that I think every justice that spoke, maybe every justice but Kavanaugh, who was really quiet actually during both oral arguments relatively, was open to some sort of line drawing. Like neither one seems super satisfied with a expansive view of 230, which has kind of been the presumption thus far, or the complete absence of 230. And I think lower courts are going to see that as an invitation to say, well, the Supreme Court's obviously open to something. Let's try and draw some lines. So if it ends up with without clear guidance from the Supreme Court, I do think the one piece of guidance lower courts are going to get is, well, we have a little more license and the courts will be a little more open to us trying to figure out what the right line is. Um, and in some ways, that's maybe what the Supreme Court wants. They want to see that experimentation, but it means we're going to see a lot more litigation in this space and probably in another case, get the Supreme Court before it's actually resolved. Can I just add to that that you know we we do a lot of the the political culture does a lot of uh, complaining about the Supreme Court and much of it is very well justified. These two uh, arguments were, I think, the justices kind of at their least political and best. There were six hours of argument. You would have a very hard time figuring out by listening to any or all of it, which justices were appointed by liberal presidents or conservative presidents. There was no easy way to split them. You couldn't figure out who was angling in which direction. I just thought it was a very impressive show by the court, honestly. And, and you know, one that, you know, even as we criticize the court in a lot of areas, uh, it's working very hard in this area and did a very creditable job, is doing or seems to be doing a very creditable job sifting through these issues. Yeah, I will say that the seriousness with which all of the justices seem to be attempting to grapple with these issues warmed even my dark, shriveled heart. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about this possibility of the court dismissing one or possibly both of these cases as improvidently granted or otherwise how we think that they might resolve things. Um, Ben, I know this is something that you've thought about. I'm curious for your thoughts. So I doubt that they would dismiss Tomna as improvidently granted, but that may be wishful thinking on my part. I think the Ninth Circuit is just wrong and it would not be a good thing to leave in place a decision that basically says any company that on a uh, all comers basis you know provides service to a terrorist organization um, among the billions of people that it serves around the world and can be held liable to the extent that it didn't do enough to get rid of those people uh, and that that may or may not have contributed in some small way to an individual terrorist attack. I think that would be a very unfortunate decision to leave in place. And I, I don't know that I see a reason why, having gotten this far with Tomna, they don't decide it. It's, a, it's ripe for decision. 
That said, I, I, and I think once you decide, Tomna, you don't need to dismiss Gonzalez as improvidently granted. You just let Gonzalez be controlled by the Tomna decision and you remand it on that basis. I don't think it is likely, although I, I could very well be wrong about this, that that there's going to be a dismissal as improvidently granted, though I think the 230 case was improvidently granted. But uh, I do think it may very well not come to decision, which kind of amounts to the same thing. I'd be curious what you and Alan think of it, though. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, the question for me is, what if Tomna is itself dismissed as improvidently granted, which I, again, don't think it would be. Or what if Tom, now this would be very surprising, but we should consider the possibility that uh, actually they, uh, the, the justices rule, um, they, they uphold the, uh, the Ninth Circuit and they rule in favor of uh, Tomna. Um, what then does that do to the 230 case? I, I think even in that case, I would not be surprised if 230 was improvidently granted. Because, you know, what, what I think that the court has realized is that it is just not currently equipped, I think, to figure out where to draw these lines uh, for 230, and that you know it would be better for Congress to do it. And even if Congress doesn't do it, it'd be better for this to percolate a little bit in the lower courts and the circuit courts. And and I think that, look, officially speaking, when the Supreme Court denies cert or what is essentially the same idea dismisses as improvidently granted, which is denying cert after the fact. That's not supposed to say anything about the merits of the case. That's the official rule. But in fact, everyone understands uh, that the court does things for reasons uh, and everyone can read between the lines. And I think that if the court were to dig the 230 case, you know, give, given what we heard in oral argument, I think what that would be sending to the lower courts is the following message. A, this is a really, really hard issue. Be very, very careful. But B, we can no longer just assume that the Zoran interpretation of 230 was correct because you heard all of our concerns about that at oral argument. So lower courts, please start putting forward your proposals as they will filter up for what you think 230 should mean, keeping in mind that you no longer have to assume that Zoran was correctly decided but at the same time, be very, very careful because we clearly think this matters a lot. Do that for a year or two. Let's see if the world ends. If the world does end, we can always grant cert immediately and fix this problem. But if it doesn't end, that will then, you know, kind of laboratory of democracy style allow us to gain some options. And then when we retake this case, we'll actually have some more clarity uh, because for several years, advocates, scholars, lawyers, courts, companies will all have been putting forward the lines that we actually need to have crisply before us to decide uh, decide what the right answer ultimately is. All right, let's leave it there. Thank you, everyone, for having this discussion. And hopefully we can all uh, now go and take a well-deserved nap. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Materials supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. 
This podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.